Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use a blue uh, pew Bible you'll find somewhere in your row. And Mark 4 is on page 839. So growing up, uh, my mom was significantly outnumbered in her house. She had a husband um, and four sons. And if that wasn't bad enough, we even decided to add a yellow lab into the home, right? Because we didn't have enough male blondes already. So that was her um, life, right? Up against it in every single way. And she, she persevered, right? She, dis- despite countless moments of frustration, to her credit, she knew the best way to even the playing field would be to play the long game, right? Be patient, keep us on the straight and narrow, and ensure that one day we might be able to convince a woman to marry us (laughs) and start balancing out that gender gap. And I mean, she, uh, credit to her, she did it. We are now at an even ratio, even with grandchildren. Um, Hats off to her. She should probably write a book. Um, But one thing that she pointed out often while we were growing up is that we all suffered from the same syndrome of selective hearing. Selective hearing. And of course, it's not just a problem with boys, but that's all we had to work with. But there's a reality that when you're growing up in a home, you kind of figure out which sounds you should respond to and which ones you should tune out. Okay, there is a certain way a mom yells your name that you know, even if you're far other side of the house, intuitively in your soul you go oh no right this this is not good and so you hear it but you and it's bad but you kind of learn your mind kind of naturally rejects it that I should not go see what that is and the example my mom always used to provide compelling evidence to her indictment of selective hearing is that she could yell our names often repeatedly and get no response but if my dad came home with a bag of M&Ms. He would always take out the bowl, take out a bowl and pour the bag in. And and if you've ever heard it, you're with me, there's a very distinct sound of an M&M hitting a bowl. And miraculously, no matter where we were in the house, if we heard that sound, we came to the kitchen to figure out what it was. Selective hearing. You see, there's a way to hear and not really hear. And I think that sounds strange at first, but we know it to be true. That's one example of any we can make, that there's there's a way to hear to not really hear, and then there's a way to hear that compels a response. It compels a response in behavior. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We are moving on to chapter 4 in the Gospel of Mark. If you are just joining us, we, back in January, began walking through this Gospel verse by verse. And this morning we reached chapter 4, where Jesus begins to teach in parables. Parables, right? Pretty, if you have church background, that's a word you've heard before. Um, But before we read the first one, it might be helpful for us just to ask the question, hey, what's a parable? What's a parable? Um, a definition I came across a couple weeks ago that I've really kind of latched onto, and it'll be on the screen, is that parables are deceptively simple stories that illustrate a truth about the kingdom of God. Parables are deceptively simple stories that illustrate a truth 
about the kingdom of God. And really, in the first century, it was a genre of literature. It was a genre of teaching. Um, Throughout the four Gospels, one-third of Jesus' teaching is done in parables. In the Gospel of Mark this morning, we're going to come across the first of eight parables that we will see as we march through this book. They are simple stories, and they're rooted in everyday life, right? So parables are not fables. They're not fantastical stories with these kind of imaginary, mythical characters. They are rooted in reality. They're rooted in everyday images and objects that would be very familiar to anybody who's listening in the first century. One commentator made the case that each parable could have been Jesus as he was teaching and walking along, something that was in eyesight that he used as a, for a parable, something that as they saw what was happening as he was teaching. Um, so they're not mythical, and they're also not allegorical. All right, allegory meaning that every little detail has some deep hidden meaning behind it. They're, they're not allegorical. There's generally a broad single truth attached to each parable. So everyday objects that are meant to stimulate your thinking are meant to shed light on a single truth in a way, again, that compels a response from the hearer. We will see in our text why he's using parables. Um, Why does Jesus use this as something in his teaching? But, But that's what parables are, an overview, deceptively simple stories that illustrate a truth. And with that, let's get going this morning. We'll start, we'll be reading Mark 4, 1 to 20, um, but we will start with the first nine verses. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, listen, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. First, we have the actual parable in this passage. Jesus begins and ends this parable with an acknowledgement that there's a way to hear where you're not really hearing. Right? Sounds strange at first, but he says directly, there's a way that you might hear this and you're not actually hearing this. Love him or hate him, people at this point were obsessed with Jesus. Right? This is the first time Mark calls the crowd, quote, very large. Right? They're coming from all different areas of the region. This is the climax of his popularity to the point where he gets into a boat in the water. He goes onto a floating pulpit. Right? And the crowd's on land, and he is sitting in this boat. And, and there's a couple of reasons. Um, on one hand, it's safer for him. Remember last time he told his disciples, get a boat ready, lest they crush me. So it's safer to have a moat in between him and the crowd. But also, and you might know this if you've been around lakes or a lake person, but your voice projects further over calm water. 
So the water served as a first century sound system that would amplify his voice. Now the crowds are large. Now they're rolling deep. Now there's people in the back that need to hear him. Right? So they knew this in the first century just by observation. But since then, science has gone on to affirm this. That water cools the air above its surface, which slows down the sound waves, cause a bending of the sound wave, and now a voice gets amplified. I'm sure you knew that. I'm sure that was just review. All right? But maybe, maybe you've always known, hey, voices travel over calm water more. Maybe you just don't know why. Now you know why. Your friends will be impressed. All right? But Jesus is on his floating pulpit. He has everyone's attention, and he still says, listen. You notice that? Like, yeah, Jesus, you're on a boat. We're all staring at you. And he still stops and goes, listen. Like, really dial in here. Listen to this. You're going to need to think about this. And then he concludes with those who have ears to hear. Let them hear. Like, kind of just a weird phrase, right? But again, it puts on display the fact that it's, it's possible to hear and not really hear. And in between those two statements, we have this parable. A story of a farmer sowing his seed. Again, something that would be very familiar and just a common scene for anybody who's listening. It's not as common for us anymore, right? It's not as common for us in our suburban context where the only seeds we see are the ones in the fruit we buy at the grocery store. All right, but it reminds me of someone once told me that um, if every Christian, if every person would go and spend a year or even a season with a farmer, just shadowing them day after day, what they do in day in and day out, it would deeply enrich your Bible reading, both Old Testament and New Testament, because the Bible was written in agrarian cultures. Okay, so we're at a disadvantage in 2008 suburbia. But we can still understand this, can't we? Jesus is talking about what's now called broadcast sowing. Just going out and spreading seed everywhere. Not walking around and trying to decide, is this soil good? Is this soil good? Just, just throw it everywhere. And the soil will produce what it produces. Don't, don't get stuck on just choosing certain types of soil. Just indiscriminately casting, casting, casting. And in doing this, obviously the seed's going to fall on all different kinds of ground. Jesus mentions four specifically, the path, the rocky ground, the soil with thorns, and then finally, the good soil. So this is the parable, and like all parables, it's meant to shed light on the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God will break into the world like a seed being sown by a farmer. And it will go to various places and it will get various responses, but in the end, there is no doubt it will yield a tremendous harvest. Now him who has ears to hear, let him hear. A paraphrase of this line in our modern day might be, um, now go think that out for yourself. And with that, he dismisses the crowd. There's the parable. Praise God, luckily for us, the story doesn't end there. All right, let's keep reading verses 10 through 12. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, 
and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. First was the parable, now second, the purpose. The purpose of parables, including this one, is why we need the word deceptive in its definition of a deceptively simple story. Because on the surface, you might just say, a parable is just an illustration. A parable is just meant to illustrate. It's just make it easier to understand, to, to shed light on such a way that the, the hearers would connect. Right? We know about illustrations. We use them all the time. In your life, you hear and give illustrations to unpack, to explain, to shed light on something you're trying to say. In fact, every week in my sermons, there are typically anywhere from two uh, to three or four illustrations that I might use. Illustrations that are meant to shed light on biblical truth, right? I'll use um, current word pictures from our culture, um, from my family, from lives of others, people I know. And the reason is hopefully to convey a point, to shed light on truth, and hopefully it connects. Surely some illustrations are uh, far more effective than others. I have to stop talking about sports so much, all right? I know, I know, all right? But the, some are going to be more effective than others. But, but no, no illustration is ever meant to supplant a message, never meant to um, replace a message, simply, hopefully, just to support it, illuminate it. So can we just say parables is just another word for illustration? Well, these three verses that we just read show us, while they might be some parallels, Parables and illustrations are far from the same thing. Did you see what Jesus just said? These are three hard verses. The crowds leave. There are 12 apostles in addition to other disciples that remain, men and women who are following him. And the crowds leave and they just settle down. They go, Jesus, that was, that was great, great teaching. Now, what does that mean? Right? Like, 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 powerful, Jesus, man, you nailed it. Um, really, like, what, what was that all about? Why did you say that? They want to know, what's the meaning of this parable? Why is this coming up in your teaching? Right? They are simple, easy to understand, but deceptive. And Jesus, he gives kind of a shocking answer. He says to you, meaning his followers, I'm revealing the secret of the kingdom of God. So far, so good. We like this. That's pretty awesome. But then he says, to those outside, everything is in parables so that they see but don't see. And so that they hear but don't hear, lest they be turned and forgiven. And he, directs, he directly quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. Perhaps you're familiar with Isaiah 6. It's the scene where a prophet has this incredible vision of seeing God on the throne. And he's initially mortified because of what he sees. And he assumes, oh no, I should not be here. And he thinks, I must be dead because who can stand before the Lord and live? Who can see the Lord and live? But then Isaiah is told, behold... Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Nothing that he's done. Only by the grace of God, he has been forgiven. And then God says, whom shall I send? Whom shall I send to go for my people? And Isaiah's there. He's pretty pumped. He's just been forgiven. He goes, me. Send me. Here I am. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? 
And God says, go proclaim the word to my people. But in their hearing, they won't understand. And in their sight, they won't see. And their hearts will be hardened. Who wants that ministry? Right? Isaiah, you're going to go preach to my people. But listen, they're not going to listen to you. They're actually going to persecute you. And in your proclamation, they're all going to be taken into exile because of their hardened hearts. Anyone? Like, not exactly a passage that's used in promo videos for seminaries these days. So back to Jesus and the disciples. Just to be clear, this is what Jesus is saying. I speak in parables for two reasons. To reveal the depths of the kingdom of God to those who believe. And also to harden the hearts of those who don't. It's a hard word. It's deceptive, right? There's an old Puritan saying that says, the same sun which melts the ice hardens the clay. And here, likewise, the same parable that melts some hearts will harden others. The purpose of parables is to reveal and to harden to reveal to those who can hear, who have a love for the word, who have a love for the teacher, for the truth that is in the word, and to harden those who hear but don't hear, who hear but don't believe, but instead resist the desire to trust, and that's what they are hearing. And so this is why it's good that we're walking through Mark verse by verse, because we understand this a little better now. Why would Jesus do this? Why parables? Remember, parables are meant to illustrate truth about the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus, when he came onto the scene in Mark, what was the first words we saw from Jesus? He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated in Christ's arrival in the flesh. And with that proclamation, along with the teaching and the miracles and the exorcisms, the crowds love it. They have ballooned. This guy is awesome. In fact, maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the Messiah we've been waiting for. But the irony is that while he is the Messiah, he's not here to do the thing they thought their Messiah would do. You see, Israel was waiting for a Messiah who would be like a political leader. They were waiting for that war general to come, to rally the troops, to take a stand against Rome and bring physical, liberating victory to Israel. But that's not what Jesus is here to do. His is a spiritual victory that will live long past Rome. And we'll live long past this entire world, one that will stretch into eternity, a kingdom that is sown into people's hearts and call for a response of repentance that comes with it, forgiveness of sin. That is the secret. That is the secret of the kingdom of God, that the Messiah is God himself taking on flesh to die for the people he's come to save. So, parables. These parables would reveal the secret to those who persist, to those who hear, to those who trust in Jesus. But to those who are not looking for that, it's going to harden. It's going to turn them off. It's going to thin out the crowd. 
The same sun which melts the ice hardens the clay. And in scripture, we don't get an explicit explanation of every parable, but we do get one on this one. So with eager hearts and perked ears, let's see what this parable means. Read with me verses 13 to 20. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Third, the meaning. Jesus begins by kind of chiding his disciples a little bit after saying, Hey, will you not understand this either? And then he also indicates that the meaning of this parable will shed light on all parables, which is why this is the one we get the meaning on. We don't get the meaning on all of those, because if we get the meaning of this one, the rest of these parables in the Gospel of Mark, we will understand. He says the farmer or, or the sower is Jesus, or anyone who shares the gospel after him, and the seed is the word. The word meaning the message, the primary proclamation that Jesus began with, that the kingdom of God is here in Christ, and we ought to repent and believe the gospel. And then he gives four paths, four soils, which correlate to four responses to the gospel. Number one, indifference. A response of indifference. The gospel goes out and it never sinks into the heart. For he says, Satan immediately comes and takes it away before it can take root. And it is painful to concede to the fact that this is the most prominent response across the history of the world. And still today. Where the word is heard but not believed. The good news that brings men and women from death to life, it just goes unheeded. Scattered on the path, scooped up with little to no consideration. For the majority of the people in the world, the word goes forth. It lands on a hardened heart and nothing happens. A heart can be hardened for any number of reasons. It could be simply just a lack of interest. I, I hear it, but there's nothing of interest there. 
The message is a waste of time. It does nothing to entice, nothing to compel, nothing to make me move or, or do anything about it. And it's like when me and you go into our email inbox. And on any given day, we might have two to three, or if you've never pressed unsubscribe in your life, two to three hundred emails a day from companies, from brands, from organizations. And the subject titles of these emails are so dramatic, aren't they? Like, best deal of the year. Or only two days remaining for your 75% discount. Or you've won an all-inclusive vacation, come claim your prize now. Or this is the most important thing you'll read all week. And 99% of the time, if you're like me, you're on your computer or you're on your phone and you're reading these things with no emotion. Delete, delete. Scroll, delete, they're a waste of time. They do nothing to entice. That is like the gospel for most people in the world. Where there's a message of new life, of Jesus Christ coming and giving his life for you, and he's the only way to the Father, eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and they hear it and nothing. No interest. And just as simple as that. For others, they are hardened, not because they don't care for religion or faith or anything that transcends, but because their minds and their hearts are already set on another religion. Or another worldview, another way of life. And, and, and they have blinders on to anything you might say because I'm already set in this department. Others might actually hear you out. They might even grow up in the church. The facts of the gospel can be totally understood. It's not a really hard message to understand. It can even be repeated back to you, but not believed. Like, no one actually believes this, right? I mean, it's just a collection of stories of, of boats and animals and, and seas partying and the sun standing still. And then, and then some guy 2,000 years ago apparently came for me and, and, and died. And then three days later, apparently he was raised to life. Like, how convenient for him. And that's supposed to change my life? Sorry, but it's It's a myth. It's as believable as a kid's fairy tale with unicorns and talking animals. Like, people actually believe this? The reality is that's how most people see the Bible. Why? Jesus says it's been snatched from them. Satan wants it to be that way. To take the word away before it could sink in. This is his primary purpose in every kind of spiritual warfare. To arrange things in people's lives so they won't believe truth when they hear it. To keep the veil over their eyes, and he's really good at it. If the Bible tells us that it's faith alone that saves, which it does, it tells us that faith comes from hearing, which it does, then it is faith alone that Satan wants to take from you. And he wants you to be in the camp of the people who hear, but doesn't really hear. There are people we all know. And we might talk and talk and share and plea and point to and invite and, and nothing. 
no pulse, no interest. The first soil is indifference. Number two, a response that is superficial. A response that is superficial. This is the seed that gets casted on rocky ground. Soil where people receive the word and immediately receive it with joy. Their hearts are welcoming to the message of a Savior. They, they love the idea of transformation, of hope that is in Jesus Christ to rescue, to restore. But it doesn't last long. Just as fast, Mark says, that they received it, they immediately walk away. Their faith is superficial. It lacks the roots that go deep into the ground. Again, any number of reasons why someone might receive a message with joy, but then time passes and it's uprooted just as fast. Think about in Jesus' day, he has whole crowds ahead of him. The majority of this crowd that is following Jesus, they are amazed. What power, what evidence of authority, how amazing is this? This guy is great. But over the course of time, the crowds will dissipate. They'll thin out. And there was no root to keep it grounded when weather came upon it like the scorching sun, the whipping wind, the pounding rains, and it withered away. And this occurs again today. We, we know it does. Some of my most discouraging moments are when I see people receive the gospel with joy and excitement, and then within a few months or even a couple of years, nothing. No evidence. No love or affection, and at times, straight denial of any kind of faith. Why does this happen? Again, Jesus just told us, tri tribulation or persecution. Certainly, the disciples hearing this in the early church through its first few centuries faced extreme physical persecution that threatened to cause people to fall away. In the parts of the world still today, there are areas hostile to the gospel, and this is still very much a reality for brothers and sisters across the globe. But what about in our day, in our context? The trials and persecution might be smaller, seemingly, might be less visibly intense, but they are just as effective in causing men and women to just walk away, to drift off. Again, simply, maybe they just get bored. The honeymoon phase of a renewed Christian life is over, and the marriage to faith in Christ gets stale. It lost its spark. It lost its passion. There's just a lot of normal days here in the Christian life, isn't there? And we kind of just suffer like everybody else does, don't we? And over time, there's just a disillusionment, and there's this mist of excitement, and the mist of, of, of newness, and so they chase after a mistress that leads them away from their vows. So whether physical persecution or just a trial of boredom or any other number of things, the reason for the second soil is the same. There's no roots. There's no roots to keep them grounded. This is one of the many reasons why being part of a local church is so crucial. And I'm not talking just attending. I'm talking about being part of a church body. 
The church is where all believers, but especially new believers, grow deep roots where there is community, where there is real accountability. It's one of his most powerful means of grace. This is the primary reason why you should consider church membership, right? Not just because we think it sounds cool or it boosts numbers or it's formal, but because the very fabric of church membership is biblical accountability that keeps us from falling away. Where you enter a covenant with a people who care for you, who care for your faith, who will equip you to grow your faith with the kind of deep roots that anchor large trees, not the superficial roots that lie below the flimsy grass. Soil number two is a superficial response. Let's keep going. Third soil, distraction. This seed sinks deep into the soil, deep into hearts, deeper than the rocky ground, but the fruit grows amongst thorns, and these thorns eventually cut off airflow and choke it out. People who receive the gospel, who will profess faith, and yet right from the get-go, there's only a partial surrendering to Christ. And so even as this faith grows, the presence of thorns are even more evident, and Christ is merely somebody who's added on as a part of their life, but he never becomes the center of their life. So Jesus might even be important to you. Jesus might even be somebody that you care about, and it's a big part of your life, but he's not the center. He's not the most important priority. And in this soil, Jesus names a couple thorns specifically. He says, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. The cares of this world. Church, we ought to pay attention here. I think this is the single biggest threat to spiritual vitality in a church like Grace Church. Where the busyness of life that we all feel, that we're all consumed by, can choke us out if we're not careful. And the hardest part, the why this is such a hard threat, is because the majority of the cares of this world are not sinful in and of themselves. They're full of even good things like work and activities and paying bills and exercise and the Monday to Friday grind and the commute and the kids' activities and the loads and loads of things that fill our calendars day after day, week after week, where normal, routine things become our primary priority. And where we might neglect taking time and intentionally setting aside time to cultivate a focus on our soul. To keep Christ at the center where he is at the core of everything we do. One pastor put it this way. He says, in our postmodern first world context, busyness is more of a threat than a bullet. Worldly busyness and the obsessive care for things in this world chokes out a faith of its vitality and keeps from any fruit coming forth. The focus is not on just having God as a part of your life, but keeping him at the center. Perhaps you've seen a graphic like this we're going to throw up on the, on the screen, but if you think about um, your life and you have all these different pieces of the pie, 
right? All these different pieces. You have relationships, and you have time, and you have work, and you have hobbies, and you have family, and you have church. Oftentimes, God is added as a slice. God's a part of my life. He's a slice. He just doesn't really, I kind of keep it compartmentalized from the other slices. So I have my God, I have my God time, I have my God priorities, but then I have work, and then I have relationships, and then I have family and hobbies. And what happens over time, is what choking it out looks like is that slice gets a little bit smaller, and a little bit smaller, and a little bit smaller, right? When my family makes pizza for dinner, Brinley gets the smallest slice, right? She's one, she's a girl. You can tell the Brinley slice and everybody else's slice. And unfortunately, in a life where we're sitting in the third soil, it's the God slice that gets eventually choked out. And so what this graphic shows is that if God is at the center, we talk about being Christ-centered. If he's at the center, any slice you pull out, God's at the middle of it. Any slice you pull out, you see your life through that lens. That is what it looks like to have a Christ-centered life, where he is the center and not just a part. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, which riches are not bad. Many things in this world are not bad. But if we're not careful, they will kill us over time if we're not careful. And then fourth, and lastly, the fourth soil. Reception. Those who hear the word and receive it. A hearing where one is actually hearing. A hearing that leads to a response that compels a response of repentance and forgiveness of our sin. A heart that puts their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and then centers their life on Jesus Christ as Lord. Justification that serves as the ground for lifelong sanctification. A faith that leads to works. Paul put it best in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faith that leads to works. Soil that receives the seed that bears fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold, and a 100-fold. Here's the gist. Good seed sown on good soil will bear good fruit. So two questions to close. Have you received the gospel in such a way where it's rooted deep in your heart, where Christ is your treasure, where the most important thing about you is that you're a child of God, secured in his grace and mercy for all eternity. Listen, this doesn't mean you got to be perfect to be in the fourth soil. You tracking? Right? This isn't like, man, you should all be nervous if you're not just killing it day after day spiritually, if you never have dips in your faith, if you never struggle against sin, if you never have seasons of doubt. That is going to be the context of all of our Christian lives, but it means that you are rooted so deep that you can withhold those trials and where Christ is your Savior through it all. To those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And then second question, if you have received this word, 
you are co-heirs with Christ and have been called to be a sower. Church, are you scattering the seed? Brothers and sisters, scatter the seed. Proclaim the gospel. Be a witness everywhere you go. Scatter, scatter, work, scatter, locker room, scatter, in the hallways, scatter, in your neighborhood, scatter. Are you scattering seed? Not where you're discriminating and saying, I think this person's going to respond, or I think this person, he says, just send it all out all the time. Scatter the seed. We plant and we water. Only God can make that thing grow. And here's the encouragement. All of us did not start in soil number four. There is hope for those in your life who are indifferent to the gospel. And there's hope for those who are superficial in their faith right now. And there's hope for those who are distracted in your faith right now. Because we serve a mighty God. Church, scatter the seed. Do it indiscriminately everywhere you can. And let's leave the rest up to God. He sovereignly chooses to use the seed that we have sowed where people will receive the gospel, live out the gospel, and then join in spreading the gospel. And let us give God all the glory for it because mighty fruit will be multiplied from it 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. I know how this thing ends, and it ends well. Let's pray. Father, let this word of yours glorify your name. Let it make much of you. And Father, when we see you on the throne high and lifted up, let that reflect upon us. And Father, for those of us in this room who need to be convicted by your word this morning, we pray you would convict. And simultaneously, Father, those who need to be assured in your word this morning, we pray your word will assure that Christ is the answer, that faith in him is where everything begins and it's where everything ends, it's where everything flows in and out of. Father, let your name be mighty in this place. Let us dwell on the fact as we worship and prepare to take the Lord's Supper that you paid it all in full. It is finished. You've done it. Praise your name. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let us stand once again and join each other in worship.